0: Hi everyone, Ashley here from pull quotes from home. Like many of you, I am at home self isolating, hopefully you are if you can. This week, our podcast was actually produced before all this happened. So it sounds like our regular studio quality, but in the coming weeks, we will be recording podcasts from home, so they'll sound a little bit different, a bit more like this. This week on our podcast, we discuss AI in journalism. It's a really fascinating topic to go through, and I hope you can listen to this to pass the time a bit. And stay safe and stay healthy. Enjoy.
1: When I was a student in Canada, no one really knew me at the time. We lived in a very rural area. So I never really thought about being close to my family. The world's attention has shifted from the first-person narrative of Jessica to a multifaceted narrative of depression. Jessica's story is multifaceted.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Pull Quotes. So OpenAI, it's a non-profit artificial intelligence organization co-founded by Elon Musk. In February 2019, OpenAI announced that it would be delaying the release of a deep learning automated text generator. On their site, OpenAI made a statement saying, Due to our concerns about malicious applications of the technology, we are not releasing the trained model.
2: In February last year, OpenAI sent in a report that it had trained a large scale, unsupervised language model, which generates coherent paragraphs of text. The report added that it can achieve state of the art performance on many language modeling benchmarks and performs rudimentary reading comprehension, machine translation, question answering and summarization, all without task specific training.
0: So question answering, machine translation, state of the art performance, what does this mean? Luckily for us, we have Mitchell Konsky, print production
2: editor of the RRJ here with us today. He spent the past few months investigating this landscape. Mitchell, tell us what this means.
3: So GPT-2 is a large transformer-based language model. Basically what that means is it is able to scour the internet based on thousands of documents, actually millions of documents of upvoted Reddit content. It then is able to structure sentences and write in a way that actually emulates the voice of a writer it doesn't just follow the rules of grammar, it's able to bend those rules accordingly. We decided to test that out. And we wanted to understand what would happen if we fed GPT-2 the required training data to collectively mirror the voice of our magazine.
0: So what you heard in our intro there was some sounds of a little bit of that technology. So we're going to get to that later on today in our interviews. And we're going to ask our guests a little bit about that technology that we generated today. So this is also fascinating i'm so excited to get to the topic today first we have andrew cochran he's the former head of strategy for cbc news and he's a journalism ai media researcher and he joins us in studio to talk more about why he thinks this type of technology has the capacity to potentially produce real journalism but also some of the things that we might be a bit afraid of as well welcome andrew thanks so much for being on our show so Mitchell told me this really interesting anecdote about you and how you remember watching space travel as a kid on yeah. your living room floor. Right. Um, so could you tell us a bit about that period of your life and how it sort of inspired you to be interested in the future of technology?
4: So space shot days were the best days because I, 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 I was able to, my mother knew I was very interested in the space program and, and and from time to time, not every time, but from time to time, she'd let me stay home. and I lay myself out on the carpet, sort of uh, head and hands, and watch uh, this little box that we had in our uh, in our living room, and watch the uh, these you know these missiles go into space. Uh, Walter Cronkite, the famous uh, anchor, was was there usually with an astronaut at his side, and they describe the whole process. and And you really, if, you know, for somebody, so I was five, six, seven, eight years old. So it, it was it was just magical to to sort of feel part of the space program. And and I, I think I think that as I as I look back now, I think that that was one of the things that launched my no pun intended my uh, my interest in in technology and its impact on on what we do with our lives and, and how we how we go about our lives it was just a few years ago now that I was as part of my job at CBC I was you know trying to keep track of what's what's current and what's coming and what we should be Keeping your eye on, and I started seeing these stories about artificial intelligence and and the ability for it to be doing research, to be generating stories, to be identifying pictures, and and, uh, and I thought, gee, it, it seems like this cycle is starting all over again. Mm-hmm. That we're you know the, the when you think back of the amount of change that we all went through from the outgrowth of the space program, from the outgrowth of the internet, from the outgrowth of mobile. It seemed that the same kind of ingredients were in place. I realized at the time how disruptive those things have been. And so I thought it it was worth paying attention to.
0: And actually, we decided to test the power of this software. Um, So Mitch, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? I've heard. I'm fascinated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So basically GPT-2, it was the language model that was created by OpenAI. We essentially wanted to see what would happen if we fed it numerous RRJ articles. So we fed it about 60 articles, each averaging around around 3,000 words. Mm. Essentially what we were able to see too is that it doesn't just talk like a toddler right now. It talks like a toddler that is very aware of our vernacular and is also able to interpret some of the themes that we talk about in our magazine a lot. One of the themes that we talk a lot about is diversity. So this is one of the first samples that it actually, it spit out after its first uh, session with the training data. Sample one. When I was a student in Canada, no one really knew me at the time. So, I mean, right off the bat, obviously a lot of it doesn't make total sense, but, you know, it has, it has sentence variety. There's different sentence length, there's variety of words um, and it has an understanding of how to structure these words in a way that not just emulates grammar but in a way that emulates voice Um, and that is horrifying but um, as we... Or or, or fascinating. Or fascinating, (laughs) a little bit of both. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
3: Um, Now I'm going to share one more and then we'll philosophize about the implications of all this. Mm -hmm. Um, This last sample to us is the most horrifying Because it actually uses people's real names. So you can find the names that are mentioned in the sample on the internet. And that opens up a whole new world of not only disinformation, but potential defamation. Um, So this is sample three. It's not all bad news for people of color. Our cities do much better. But it's why the Toronto Star continues to be obsessed with its Transglobe news service. It's why this week the paper published two columns. First... From reporter Alison Weir of the Canadian Press. In the end, the Toronto Star is the worst city in Canada. What are what are your overall impressions of that?
4: I'm am a bit stuck on your word horrifying. I, I'm not I'm not uh, I, I'm I'm not going to in any way shape or form defend uh, GPT two or other other kinds of technologies. But but I, I I would tend to quibble a bit on the word horrifying and 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 uh, and just uh, think of it as a kind of a massive wake up call about what's What's uh, possible and what's in existence, and more, what's coming, and how we, as journalists and and informed members of the public, uh, need to be aware of the issues and need to be uh, that much more literate about about. How these things are working. So, 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 so that, 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 for starters, it, it's, I, as I say, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a big wake-up call. I'll give you horrifying on the potential impact. <laughs> Certain, cer- certainly that. I mean, yeah. as a piece of technology, I think it's, it's a wake-up call. As, as, a, as its impact, certainly on those reporters, if not the reputation of the Toronto Star or other publications, and I only say the Star because it was named. Um, that, that, that could be truly, uh, that could be truly horrifying, depending on the degree to which. Uh, you believe it you mm-hmm. know I, I, I think I think that the the impressive thing to me certainly from the first and even to some extent the second piece you read is and the deceptive the really deceptive uh, kind of magically deceptive work that these are doing is the ability to keep that train of thought you know yes some things go off a little bit you know and and, and if you're a really close reader, you could say well that sentence doesn't kind of add up to the one before <laughs> yeah. but then it kind of gets back in track again you know so uh, so that's you know it's pretty uh, it's pretty interesting and,
3: and i was you know so it's been evolving at a rapid pace mm-hmm. do you think eventually maybe even in recent years this might become indistinguishable from a human or do you think it's already there right now I think by times
4: it's indistinguishable. I mean, some of the stuff you mentioned, for example, if you read uh, just the first paragraph or two, if you read the first paragraph or two of those, that's pretty indistinguishable from something that somebody might say. So to some extent, we're there. Where the challenge becomes is it, by times, it, it, it can fairly quickly deteriorate or degrade. And again, in context, it just kind of loses... That, if you will, train of thought, but but does GPT-2 know anything? It knows absolutely nothing. It just knows numbers and associates the numbers with. And so I guess back to your word, which was stuck in my mind. If anything, if anything is horrifying, it's that we end up investing uh, the amount of trust or belief in these systems, which are really only calculating massive sets of numbers at at blindingly fast speeds.
0: And and on that note of you know, if we take these things on in newsrooms, how can we hold out these sort of algorithms accountable, I guess? Like, it seems like we'd have to hire mm-hmm. a fact-checker to fact-check these pieces <laughs> sort of thing.
4: Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's, you know, that's still a question that's very much an unresolved issue uh, because as as the ability of, of these machines gets to be more advanced, uh, our ability to use natural Ways to verify that to do the verification that's you know central to journalism verification is going to be a uh, a significant issue.
0: So it's almost as if like a if a newsroom was to take this on they'd have to have a full experts in AI sort of looking at how this. Well, so so let, data let's let's
4: let's look let's look at the uses today. The uses today the, everything I've just been talking about is is mm-hmm. future stuff. Okay. And, I, and so I think it's going to take time to resolve it, and we need to take the time to do it. So by the time that capability is here, we're able to we're able to uh, come up with the right kind of answers. So everything again, big neon type. Everything I just talked about isn't happening today, but the stuff that's happening today is is actually you know is is a all pretty verifiable by journalists. And I think helping journalists in several ways. You know, it's, uh, Mitch and I a while ago talked about this system in the UK called RADAR, which is the ability to have, produce multiple versions localized by community for data that's issued in a national database. So if in the in the UK, if the NHS National Health Service comes out with a report, RADAR is able to write a story that will then drive a machine learning system to dive into the database, pull from it the information that's pertinent to their story, and localize Localize it between the different boroughs in London, what's going on in Scotland. They can do all those different versions pertinent with the facts pertinent to those areas. So all of a sudden, a huge boon to local news and a huge leverage on the ability of an individual journalist. An individual journalist at Radar can write one story, uh, one templated story, and produce 350 Stories from it. They have a newsroom of I think five people. Might they might be at six now, and they're producing something like ten thousand stories with five wow. people. And wow. it's, you know, it's like you know more than the New York Times with five mm-hmm. <laughs> with five people. Mm-hmm. So that it's it's a so to that extent, it's adding a tremendous amount of leverage to an individual journalist. It's removing the scut work of combing through a report for the individual uh, results in you know, Pickering or Fredericton or whatever and and able to retrieve those right away uh, to the point where Pickering and Fredericton probably wouldn't receive coverage before where now it can be. So it's upping value and service to communities. So there's lots of, lots of wins and it still gives the ability for the practiced seasoned journalists to be able to look at that story and say, well, look, that just doesn't make sense that there's a 457% increase in sick days and whatever. And then they can Look at it and if it's if the examination looks then they can get on the phone and they can. Have you had a lot of extra sick days there? And, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. That kind of traditional verification is still possible. So, mm-hmm. so there's lots. You know, there's all kinds of things that are really helping journalists do their work in, uh, in 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 new and better ways.
0: My only concern here, of course, though, is that if you said there's only five people working in that newsroom, mm-hmm. what does that mean for journalists like us that are starting out and you know, in a way, the AI machine is kind of taking on a job that we could do, essentially. So,
4: so far, the, so far, the evidence is, I mean, it's a, it's a perfectly appropriate um, issue to raise. And I have a lot of different thoughts about it. But the first one is that so far, the evidence is that AI is adding jobs as opposed to taking away jobs. Because it's, it's uh, you know, there's, there's a, the, the, the normal work still needs to happen. And the hiring is to is to introduce these new new abilities, and and so it's in an odd way the leverage factor is is contributing to that hiring because because a, a newsroom is able to say look look at look at all the look at the benefits we can be getting ten thousand new stories a month, and
3: all we need to do is hire,
4: you know, four or five more people to do that.
3: So one thing that I do want to mention, um, because as you said. Having this automation, it allows journalists to apply their skills elsewhere. So, in some ways, it actually opens up more opportunity. Mm-hmm. However, uh, <clears throat> it seems to me that the automation is only as valuable as the data is verifiable. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it could potentially cause problems if these templated stories are going off of skewed data, data that is incorrect, um, inaccurate. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of news organizations, they use, they use automated insights and they're a trusted source and they, mm-hmm. they then channel the, the data feeds to automated insights and then they produce the pros afterwards. How can we ensure in this you know, rampant world of the internet where there's so much data and it's hard to identify what's real and what isn't, how can we always ensure that the data that is being used for these templated stories is as accurate as possible. Hire more journalists.
4: Because, you know, when you when you I, I say that somewhat globally, but when you think about uh, when you think about the role of the journalist in, you know, beyond the traditional roles that we've all been associated with, it's really that the, the training set is how to be a critical thinker, make very you know, be sort of be kind of skeptical in a healthy way, and to be professionally curious. To you know, just ask better and better questions. That's kind of the, if you will, the essential skill set. And and you know, right now, and traditionally we've been applying that skill set to doing a story for television or doing a story for a magazine or a newspaper or radio or whatever the case may be. But I think over time, I think it's going to evolve so that that same skill set is going to be more important than ever uh, to apply to everything. To apply it to data sets. To apply it to the outcome of the data sets. To apply it to to uh, these new forms of storytelling, I'm pretty uh, pretty bullish on the future for for journalists, as long as there's the right kind of training for journalists. Mm.
3: You told me once a great quote. You said, "You can't look an algorithm in the eye." Right, <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's true. And it seems to me, disinformation campaigns, you know, the the legal threat of that, the how, the fact that you can't hold these algorithms legally accountable. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is something that people who are promoting disinformation campaigns could potentially hide behind? Well, I'm not a
4: lawyer, so, so I, I can't give you a legal opinion on that. I, I can say that in some ways the trickier area is the idea of intent. A lot, a lot of uh, defamation and related areas look at intent. If your intent was to, you know, malign or be malicious about your characterization of, of uh, another person, no, no matter the tool that you used, again, not a lawyer, but my guess is that still that's you know that's, you, that still is actionable. The difficulty becomes when a algorithm, you know, that's been just programmed in a certain way produces a a, uh, a bad result with no bad intent the, I don't think that the law has considered that before there's so many new kinds of questions that that the world of AI presents AI has three fundamental building blocks there's uh, data so so-called big data has has led to where we are today and as data expands more and more and more and more that's more and more and more nourishment for AI systems AI systems kind of live off of data. So the growth of data is one one big important point. The uh, speed of computing is another big important point. And then the algorithms to process the data in, in the best possible ways at high speeds is the third. And as those three, those are really the three things to watch. As those three, three things advance over time is where you're gonna start seeing all of these changes. The thing to watch I think for everybody is 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 the availability of data and how we're treating it, and its provenance, and so that's so. Think of the data, think of the speed of computing, and think of the algorithms and what they're doing to manipulate those two.
0: Well, thank you so much, yeah. Andrew. That no, was great. Been, fun. Yeah. This <laughs> conversation could go on for days. Oh, you guys, so. are great.
4: you guys got me started. You're good to, <laughs> talk to
0: you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. Yes. Our next guest hasn't been using GPT-2 technology, but she has been using AI technology since 2013. Lisa Gibbs is the News Partnership Director at the Associated Press. She says that AI has helped transform their overall coverage strategy. She joins us on the line from New York to tell us more about the benefits of AI.
3: Hey Lisa, how are you doing?
0: Hi, good,
1: thank you.
3: Based on the conversations that we've had previously for the feature article that I'm writing, You have been in the game of automated text since 2013. Um, You said that I think you started in the first um, earnings quarter of 2014. um, But at the end of 2013, Automated Insights approached you, and that's when you started understanding the implications of automated text. Um, Yes,
1: although we didn't go live with uh, that until the third quarter of 2014.
3: So ever since then, there's been this rise of automated text throughout the world.
1: Um, How have
2: those projects evolved since you started work in this space?
1: Well, we started with very basic, uh, automatically generated text. So, um, you know, we are able to produce uh, through story templates thousands of stories about corporate earnings every year, we're able to produce thousands of stories about sports games, uh, both previews of games, recaps of games, Um, basic text generation is used a lot, uh, you know, by many other media outlets around um, election results, Um, you know, you're starting to see an increasing interest in using these technologies to help produce additional content for local uh, communities hyper local and and personalized news um and that's really like that's not the g p t two kind of stuff I mean that's very you know journalists write a template, create you know use data sets to ping the template and produce stories i mean there's nothing even particularly intelligent about. The technology itself. Um, since those original experiments, we are doing a whole lot more with how do we use natural language processing to take an AP text story and produce multiple versions of it for different devices. Uh, so, you know, can you take a text story that's meant to be read on a phone or on a website, uh, you know, on your desktop? And, you know, create a two to three sentence summary that's meant to be spoken, um, either by voice activated device or um, read on the radio or, or that kind of thing. And, you know, and even going from there, you know, can you take natural language processing and create, you know, every top story AP produces throughout the day? Can we automatically generate a Q&A version of that? And how do you how do we ensure there's still journalistic analysis involved in these stories? So essentially all of that journalistic analysis analysis, instead of coming into play at the back end is going into the front end, building the branches of the story template in ways that accommodate all of the possibilities that the data you're working with suggest. Sometimes it's called branch writing. Sometimes it's called automated writing you know, it's a little bit of a reversal of the traditional journalism process. Uh, But so the understanding, having a deep understanding of the data, um, having a deep understanding of how uh, to write stories that convey the proper meaning of the data, all of that is done ahead of time and very carefully tested. So that's where the journalistic analysis is very much coming into play. But once you've perfected that system, well, then it works well. Um, and really, after that, the job is ensuring that the data is kept up to date and accurate. You know, bad data, bad story.
3: We're excited to tell you, too, that we have been working on an experiment to understand this OpenAI technology. So this is one of the first samples that we got. Uh, when I was a student in Canada, no one really knew me at the time. We lived in a very rural area, so Any I, I no never... idea what I wanted out of life. Instead, I just wanted to live it.
2: What do you believe are the implications and the outcomes of the technology that Mitch was talking about?
1: Well, the thing that comes to mind, using these technologies requires a lot of understanding and conversation about the goals you're trying to achieve and really importantly, the integrity of the data and the process that's going into it. Um, You know, ensuring that the data that's going into these stories uh, is, you know, clear and consistent and accurate um, so that the story produced on the other side is uh, also accurate. Um, And importantly, not just factually accurate, but contextually accurate. Um, There is no question, and this is true of this technology, and it's been true of most technologies over time, that it can be used for a bad intent, or it can be used for a good intent. Um, So that anyone that has the intention of creating disinformation uh, could certainly use these technologies to do so in a very powerful way. Um, In the same way that uh, somebody could use photo editing software to manipulate an image. News companies uh, that are in the business of producing independent, fact-based information um, w- would not, or certainly should not, uh, be using these technologies in this way. And I think one of the big takeaways is that it really gets back to the trust and reputation, you know, of the, of the news brand. The 60 articles were meant to convey your magazine's style and linguistic. Protocols you know and that's the same thing with us I, and 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 you're, and that's been tapping their larger you know database in combination um I mean we're doing the exact same thing only with thousands of a p articles um you know to create that so um but but in any case, like I mean that doesn't even really matter i mean I think the point you know that what you all are really talking about is um. You know, how much do we need to worry about the abilities of this technology to produce very real-sounding, you know, authentic-sounding, you know, articles that could easily confuse uh, people out there uh, as to their authenticity? Well, guess what? We're there. We're already there. Um, there are so many examples of misinformation and uh you know fake news and propaganda or whatever you want to call it out there that there you know there's all we're already dealing with this issue. So, um and, and this has been true uh, you know, since the creation of news. So um Like with everything, it's incredibly important for trusted news companies to have uh, real strategies and playbooks for how they're going to uh, use these technologies themselves. And I also think that there's another aspect of it, which is um, that news companies as well as you know, nonprofit organizations throughout society, or tech companies, or researchers. Um, you know, really need to be working hard to come up with technologies that detect, you know, mis you know manipulation or misinformation that, that you're talking about, and and to combat them.
2: Mm-hmm. And how do you ensure that your data is managed correctly in your newsroom? How's the data verified?
1: Well, what we do is we uh, identify data partners whose whole businesses. Uh, are maintaining, you know, collecting uh, and and maintaining that data. You know, we do also have a group of journalists whose job it is to work with data, and uh, they spend really a good good amount of time um, cleaning the data, you know, making sure that it's it's accurate and complete uh, before we would use it for any kind of automation project. Uh, So really, like, I mean, you're getting at a really important issue for society, but certainly newsrooms. You know, the, the accuracy and availability of data is so critical for not just news, but also, like, really being able to measure the success of just about any policy initiative or, you know, I mean, you name it.
2: And obviously we can't hold algorithms legally accountable. So we're wondering how can we ensure the right sanctions are implemented as this tech evolves?
1: Well, first of all, I don't think it's necessarily a permanent situation mm-hmm. that we won't be able to hold algorithms legally accountable or certainly the owners of those algorithms. Um, so I think like that's very much an evolving field. Um, You know, accountability has to start, I mean, speaking for my own case, you know, accountability has to start with the newsroom. I mean, every single automated story we generate, that is an AP story. It does not matter to us whether or not a a human journalist wrote that story or uh, an algorithm generated that story. You know, we created it, we're publishing it, we're accountable for it. So I think any of these projects has to start with that basic principle.
2: We're we're also emerging journalists going into the workforce, and we can see these things as exciting or horrifying. Um, what do you think is the future of how we do journalism with tech such as this in newsrooms?
1: When students and professors ask me whether they should be teaching artificial intelligence to their students, um, I mean, what I say is that the far more critical thing to be teaching students, uh, journalism students, is uh, data literacy. Um, The technology will change. And what we know of as artificial intelligence today is not going to be the same thing um, five years from now or ten years from now or maybe even two years from now. Um, And so, you know, having that basic uh, facility with data and how to use it, properly for for journalism you know the tools will change but underneath that the core qualities of you know how to use data but also you know news judgment critical thinking um you know asking questions of a source interrogation compelling storytelling like those score, those core skills will remain just as necessary as they always have been that is my belief
2: Well, thank you so much for being with us, Lisa.
1: Thank
3: you so much.
2: Oh, I enjoyed it.
0: Thank you, Andrew Cochran and Lisa Gibbs for their insight on AI technology. This conversation certainly doesn't stop here. And Mitchell, thanks very much for helping us guest produce this podcast.
2: Um, Could you tell us more about what you've been working on this year for your feature for the RJ?
3: Absolutely. My feature story is actually investigating some of the automated text generation programs that newsrooms throughout North America are using and it explores some of the implications of these programs. And we're excited for you guys to read it.
0: Yes. And that's it for our show. So if you like the podcast today, let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Ryerson Review and on Instagram at The Ryerson Review. Our podcast was produced by myself, Ashley Fraser, our producer, Tanya Serik, and our guest producer for this week, Mitchell Konsky. Special thanks to
2: technical help from Angela Glover and thanks to our guests this week, Andrew Cochran and Lisa Gibbs. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. See you next time.